Ryback. I'm coming to get my niece now. Come and get her. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers, may contain strong language, and will definitely involve Casey Ryback. Who's Casey fucking Ryback? Casey Ryback's a former SEAL team captain, a counter-terrorist expert. He's my instructor for Craig. He's the best there is. Today we delve into the bargain bin and discuss Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory. Starring Steven Seagal, Eric Bogosian, Everett McGill, Catherine Heigl, and Morris Chestnut. Directed by Jeff Murphy. Any other heroes? Ryback's hitting the hostage cars. Nobody beats me in the kitchen. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I am just a lowly, lonely podcaster. It's Gally in Glasgow. Uh, and we're on a choo-choo. It's Evelyn in London. Loco secured. This is Matt in South Korea. And we're taking another dip into the bargain bin today, uh, which is our series where we look at that ubiquitous cultural trash heap from our youth and see if we can dig out any treasures let's see if we manage one today i was gonna say this was your pick matt but it was sort of a general consensus pick it's a, a collaboration pick i suppose yeah it just sort of uh it just sort of happened it came out of the 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 ether and we all decided that this was what we were desperate to talk about yeah it started as a it was a short list that had under siege uh, the 1992 original under siege on it and it somehow led to uh, the agreement to do part two instead, Dark Territory. We can all agree that Under Siege is objectively the better film out of the two, but we had that telepathic link across the globe and just decided, you know what, it would be far more interesting to discuss the nuances of Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory. Matt, why don't you tell us how you first came to see the film? I think uh, I was about 14 or 15 and I was at Richmond School. It was a sick day and uh, my mum used to rent me a VHS if I was off school. And uh, I either sent her down specifically for this or she picked it up for me. I can't remember. Uh, I think she knew I was keen on the the first one because we saw it in Hong Kong. Uh, My Uncle David was someone who introduced us to Steven Seagal. And uh, I remember liking the first one a lot. So I was eager to see the second one. We rented it from uh, a really cool little uh, video shop called Kavanagh's, which has now turned into kind of a boring co-op. But uh, it was the place where I found all of those early VHS kind of throwback films that you always talk about. I wondered if you two had a similar place where you used to get videos from too. Was there an, an odd kind of shop that you that you would always visit. Yeah, well, I, I had two. So when I was really young um, in Herworth, on the way down to Croft, next to the station pub, used to get the um, the wine stores, which stayed open till nine. Uh, the only thing I remember them having on video was uh, Major League Two. Was that Charlie Sheen? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no Wesley Snipes, I believe. He was replaced by, uh, I think it's Omar Epps. 
but yeah, the, and then later on uh, the spa shop where where I also worked. So I used to yeah. get uh, videos up from there. Yeah, we had another one called uh, Clearview, which is uh, like an electrical shop, and it was kind of divided between electrical. You could look at the toasters, and then you could look at Crocodile Dundee on VHS. <laughs> it was like the same, the same space, and then it, it grad. They gradually just phased out the VHS kind of section and the. Uh, the larger shop took over with that. But that was the place where I found all of those films, like all the Tarantino stuff when it came out. And, you know, that those kind of shops were, were really important in the sort of the development of uh, learning about cinema and things like that. And it's kind of a shame that they're, that they're gone now. Considering, like, everything is now available pretty much everywhere, there's something to be said for having just a little weirdo curated selection that you can only choose from a few limited titles. Yeah, we had a spa across the road, so similar story to Devlin, and it housed a limited number of titles. And unfortunately for me, we didn't have a cinephile who run that shop, so there was no Tarantino, there was no Scorsese, there was Van Damme, Seagal, Norris, Schwarzenegger. So it was all action fair in my local spa in Stoke-on-Trent. The action cinema was always uh, like the prevalent thing. It was... Uh, the first time I ever saw Steven Seagal, like an image of him was on the front of a VHS box and it was a hard to kill and Nico double bill. They put them on the same tape. So if you rented it, you could watch both movies. Uh, and, uh, I watched them again recently and, uh, was still kind of impressed by some of it. It was, it's kind of fun, but he's an odd, he's an odd character. You know, I don't, I don't really know how he compares to some of the other hmm. action stars of the day. He's definitely an odd one. And just like you, Matt, I came to Seagal by just seeing the front cover of VHS tapes, like Hard to Kill, of just his big face. And I remember watching it and being really impressed with him scooting around in a hospital bed, having been in a coma for years, with a goofy beard and long hair, looking like he'd just come straight out of 10,000 BC. And (laughs) even though he was in a bed with a broom, he was still able to kick people's asses. And as a teen, I just lapped all that kind of stuff up. And the other reason why I think I really was quite fond of him in that film is I remember the moment when he's filming William Sadler from a distance and he's got what appears to be like a genuine BBC studio camera on his shoulder. And I just thought that was charming. But he's definitely a fascinating, fascinating star. He's, uh, he's an oddity. He's, he's kind of, he's not funny. He's not particularly handsome. And if you compare him to some of the other stars of the day, you know, he, he doesn't have the, the body, you know, he doesn't look like a Jean-Claude Van Damme or an Arnie or a Sly Stallone. Mm. He's just, uh, uh, I, I believe there was a guy called Michael Ovitz who was... Steven Seagal's former Aikido pupil and uh, soon to be his agent. And this guy believed he could make anyone a movie star. And Steven Seagal is the evidence for that. (laughs) I don't think we need to get into the whole sordid history of Steven Seagal's career, but we can say that he's rightfully been exposed for the scumbag that he is. And really our job looking at this, uh, this film is to, kind of understand how he became such a prevalent star as you said matt he's got no charisma he can't really deliver dialogue and his fighting style is terribly uncinematic people run at him he grabs their wrists and they fall over 
So <laughs> those filmmakers that worked with him had to work really hard to make sure that he looked as badass as he did. And clearly it worked because I'm talking now as a pure aftertimer uh, saying how, how terrible he was. But as a kid... Like I said before, I really did love Steven Seagal. So I was I was gonna um operate under the hypothesis here that he may be the single he has like the 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 best ratio of lack of talent to worldwide success. I can't think of a less deserving, more famous actor. I can't I literally can't even think of anyone who is on the same plane as this guy who has managed to defraud the entire entertainment world for three decades plus. You know what it is, Devlin? Before we get into the plot of the film, you know right at the end when he's waving his arms around? I think that's what he was doing. He's just waving his arms around and it hypnotised an entire generation of people, including myself, and we just fell under his spell. And the other thing that I kept thinking about was, you know, Bruce, Arnie, and Sly when they were opening up Planet Hollywood. I wonder if they sat down for that first delicious burger and chips and went, who is this Seagal bloke who's trying to dethrone us? Because he's got nothing on us. They must have been like, what is going on? Well, he's like the, the, the second tier. So, yeah, those guys are the top tier. Like, you know, uh, Arnie, Sly, you'd put Willis in there, even though he kind of, he wasn't a purely action cinema guy, but, you know, he had his... his his moments and then just beneath it you've got the sort of van damme seagal tier and it's where norris too perhaps yeah yeah yeah. i think you're right devlin i think he was in the second tier with van damme because he had a good decade of real box office success and i would suggest that this was probably the last film of seagal's that i watched because of him because after this I started watching Jackie Chan, and there is no comparison. Mm. So I became woke to Seagal's limitations, I guess. Yeah, I think when, you, when you're younger, you just buy what he's doing, like waving his hands around. And, and what, what, what I liked about the first one, the, the first Under Siege has more uh, knife fights, and there's a lot of cool kind of uh, quick-moving uh, uh, knife fights. But in the second one, it turns out to be more like a happy, slapping kind of... <laughs> thing that's really unusual and at one point it looks like a fight you'd have with your brother or your younger sister or something like that and they're rolling around on the floor and it's just it it doesn't look um particularly interesting or real it's just uh you know maybe if you're 15 14 15 it's uh it's okay let's get aboard the train then matt would you like to provide us with the plot of under seeds 2 colon dark territory Ryback is back. In this sequel to the 1992 action film Under Siege, retired Navy SEAL and not-so-lowly cook Casey Ryback, played by Steven Seagal, takes a grand continental Rocky Mountain train journey with his estranged niece, Sarah, following the untimely death of her parents, only to be, again, the right man in the wrong place at the wrong time. A team of terrorist commandos led by former CIA hacker, suicide faker, and nutbar Travis Dane, and mercenary hard-cased Marcus Penn seize control of the locomotive, using it as their mobile command post, and take the passengers, including Sarah, hostage. Their mission? To hijack the top-secret military satellite particle weapon, Grazer One, which is capable of blowing stuff up. Big stuff, like Washington. (laughs) More specifically, a nuclear reactor located underneath the Pentagon. That is unless the world's governments pay them. One billion dollars. 
Dane Demos grazed the one's might by zapping a Chinese chemical weapons plant. As they enter dark territory, making communications between train dispatchers and railroad engineers impossible, the Grand Continental switches tracks and is now on a certain death collision course with a Southern Pacific freight train. Ryback, aided by Porter and reluctant sidekick Bobby Zacks, evades capture and proceeds to throw a monkey in the wrench at every turn, ultimately thwarting Dane's destructive plan, whacking all the bad guys one by one and rescuing the hostages by detaching the carriages. Dane's laptop takes a bullet from Ryback and the Pentagon suddenly regains control of Grazer One, blowing it into a million bits just in the nick of time. Dane dies horribly after a finger-severing, fiery, helicopter, rope-ladder death ball. And in the final scene, Ryback, accompanied by Sarah, visits the grave of his brother, and they pay their last respects. One of the first things that struck me upon revisiting the film was the fact that it would be a train, which would be the central location for all our action. Because I was thinking to myself, well, a train can only travel longitudinally, i.e. forwards and backwards, and that seems quite limiting. And then... That started to get me thinking about the whole die-hard honour concept. So the first Under Siege was die-hard on a ship, and then this one is going to be die-hard on a train. And from a distance, everything appears to be beat-for-beat a die-hard clone. But actually, when you look closely, there are some real, real special nuances that Seagal, I think, is, is his hands are all over to change that whole concept of die well, hard. Well, I, I have some parallels. Uh, I made a list of things that do line up between, uh, you know, the theory of die hard honor, dot, dot, dot. And then, you know, there's a list of uh, films that are guilty of this. Uh, there's Speed 2 Cruise Control and arguably Under Siege, the original 92 version, uh, which could be die hard on a boat. Um, and then you've got this one, uh, die Hard on a Train, but I, I have another favorite Die Hard on a Train. It's John Woo's Broken Arrow. I don't know if you've seen Broken yeah, Arrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen Broken Arrow. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember it being a good throwaway, disposable fun. Right. It's kind of a guilty pleasure. I like that one a little bit more than this one. But um, I, I did draw some parallels between this one and Die Hard. There, there is always an air vent or a passageway or a hatch. There's always something like that that the the... Uh, the hero has to crawl through and uh interestingly enough uh i timed seagal crawling through one of these uh small spaces and it took him 18 seconds to get through a hat <laughs> well maybe that explains and why an executive decision he just can't be bothered to get out of the hatch and decides to just die <laughs> i think uh bruce willis could have gone through maybe five or six hatches in that time and someone like jackie chan you know could get through you know one in, in just a couple of seconds but seagal he's like a human sloth in many ways. <laughs> die, die hard the this die hard honor dot 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 theory uh the bad guys typically terrorists or mercenaries sometimes a lone individual with some henchmen uh seize control of a, a location or a vehicle and uh hostages are typically held uh, one of whom is usually a family member of the good guy, the hero, and another is usually executed at some point during whatever negotiations are going on. And unbeknownst to the the bad guys, the hero remains hidden on this vehicle or uh, enclosed space or whatever it may be. And the they kind of stumble into the plot um, and they proceed to throw a spanner in the works and uh, ultimately overthrow the the bad guys and uh, restore order. So if you look at, at, at 
that kind of a breakdown of what Die Hard uh, is and ultimately birthed in the action genre, this does kind of fit into that uh, category, I think. The framework's there, but in execution, this film is very different to the Die Hard clones that you mentioned earlier. Because ordinarily, the heroes in those films are underdogs facing unsurmountable odds, one in a million stuff. And the villains are ordinarily overpowered and they kind of revel in their villainy. We don't get any of that either. So <laughs> when when the terrorists in this film find out that it's Casey Ryback on the train, they all shit themselves. Everyone starts turning and looking at each other going, well, we better, we better think of another plan because we can't go through with this terrorist plot. What kept making me laugh was how cigars on the top of the train just peering over the windows, just looking in. That's all he ever does in this film. <laughs> There's a great stuntman there. That The stuntman is kind of uh, much better than Seagal. It, it cuts to Seagal and it looks like he's just popping to the shops. Like, <laughs> he, he looks like he's just... He's he's just wandering across the top of the train, but when you cut to the wide of the stuntman, he's actually really trying to sell it, and you feel you feel bad for this guy. Like Seagal just phones it in completely. I was wondering, like, it, it doesn't even seem to be any wind rush going past him no. when he's on top of a speeding train. Do you think that's just because of the abnormal amounts of grease that he has in his hair? <laughs> it just doesn't register any air movement. I agree with you. I, I don't think he's in any danger at any point. You, you don't feel like there, there's anything that's going to happen to him. There's, there's barely a scratch on him by the end of the movie. He does get shot, but then refuses <laughs> to, he refuses to admit he's been shot. He, he, he tells uh, Morris Chestnut that uh, uh, you think this is shot, this isn't shot. And yeah. he clearly is shot. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And in the first Under Siege, even though Casey Ryback is the ultimate badass, there are moments of vulnerability. I remember he doesn't—he um, he gets saved by the psychic, by the blonde psychic in it. He's about to get killed. So at, at least in the first film, he was adhering to those fundamental tropes of the die-hard clone, whereby he is facing unsurmountable odds and does show moments of weakness. Yeah, also he gets uh, hooked just before that with a, uh, yeah, an anchor yeah. that they throw down and it kind of hooks him. Uh, They're like and, grappling hooks in it, yeah. So he does actually uh, bleed his own blood, you know, in a way. No, and it speaks to an era when our action heroes were very self-protective of their own image. Arnie, Sly, and the Muscles. And one of the things that they delivered, along with those large and live characters, is wisecracking and, you know, humor. Seagal has none of that. Yet the whole film is trying to make us believe that everybody loves Casey Ryback. It's, uh, it's laughable. Well, he, he can't even wisecrack properly. I mean, his wisecracks in these films are the lamest things I've ever heard. He's talking about, in the first one, he says something about down by the bayou. I didn't even know what he's talking about half the time. Yeah. And, and everyone fawns over him like this alpha male. And they just give him this attention. And, and he walks into the kitchen at the beginning of uh, Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory. And uh, the everyone in the kitchen stops what they're doing and says, oh, hi, Casey. You know, like they can't, they can't <laughs> believe that he's there. And I, I think it's probably a request of his. Sorry to hear about your brother, Casey. Yeah, hey, the family? You're going to have to hurry if we're going to make that train at least in 45 minutes. How come you two are taking a train to California anyway? Did you fly if your parents just died in the plane crash? Hi, Casey. What's up, Casey? Hi, Casey. Casey. Welcome back. Come on, guys. Get busy. 
place runs a whole lot better when you're around, Casey. I mean, I can run it. Yeah, you can run it, but you can't. Well, the Patriots come here for you, Casey. They don't come here for me. It's like a parody because uh, and, when we look at it now, it, it's it seems ridiculous. But they, they were really going going for that. I think without any hint of irony. I think it's it's designed either by him or uh, I. I, I I don't really know too much about Jeff Murphy. All I know is that he made Young Guns 2, which I absolutely love. And I recognized his name from there. And I, I researched a bit about Jeff Murphy, but uh, we can talk about him later if you want. But that, that whole um, uh, that idea of seeing him uh, again, it's like we've been waiting years to see Casey Ryback again. And I just, I'm not too sure it's, it's true. But that swell in the music, I noticed as well, it's, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it comes from the fact that like, as we've said, he's such a black hole of charisma and there's nothing, there's nothing about him specifically that is interesting or compelling or good. And so the film has to work overtime all of the time to convince you of his badassery. Mm -hmm. And I think like, uh, and in this, it it tips over into the point where it is just hilarious. But I mean, it it sort of presages his later straight to video career where, you know, he's churning out eight films a year now where his, his body double is, is taking on 80% of his workload and his characters on screen for all of about 14 minutes. Right. Oh, that's a good time Um, to mention uh, Clementine. I haven't seen it yet, but it's a Korean film. And uh, apparently he was paid a, a, a lot of money and he came in and just filmed for a couple of days and it was sold as a Steven Seagal movie, but uh, in Korea. And it is uh, notorious now as one of Korean cinema's biggest flops. So he's even, he's even tainted uh, South Korean movies. <laughs> yeah, Seek it out, Clementine, if you can find it. But yeah, like that's a filmmaking challenge, right? If you're a, a filmmaker and somebody says, make a compelling film out of a nothing, a lazy, self-absorbed <laughs> narcissist who doesn't want to get punched, try and generate some tension out of that. Challenge accepted. Step forward, New Zealand-born director, Jeff Murphy. Guys, you know anything about this guy? A big indie filmmaker uh, in New Zealand. He made a movie called The Quiet Earth, which is like a last man on earth movie uh, he made free jack which i've still never seen he's kind of a hollywood sequel guy he made young guns 2 blaze of glory sorry young guns 2 colon blaze of glory <laughs> and uh it, it's genuinely no one believes me when i say this but it, it is one of my favorite westerns i definitely say top 10 westerns and i love the screenplay and it's great to see all those guys together uh he directed second unit on dante's peak which is a favorite of the (laughs) rewind movie podcast (laughs) i actually knew him from lord of the rings trilogy the behind the scenes he was actually a second unit director on on peter jackson's lord of the rings trilogy oh well there you go then so he's a he's a real director and somewhat of a predecessor to peter jackson certainly in the hollywood system but for what it's worth from me, I think he does a pretty good job with this film, considering his star appears to be reluctant and somewhat absent for most of the action. Can we uh, can we talk about the music? Because I think my fellow compatriot, Basil Polidorus, does a great job. Every time Seagal is in a scene, the music swells, it thunders, it rocks you. I think Basil clearly has watched the footage and knows Seagal isn't going to sell it, so he's decided to take ownership and he gives us this bombastic score throughout, and I bloody love it. That said, I completely and utterly forgot 
that we were about to do a homage to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. This film starts off in space, which for any franchise is normally reserved for the creatively bankrupt. Would you like to go back to the start? Because I felt you, you were right about the score. The, uh, that score and the opening titles over the, uh, uh, the spacecraft launching, yeah. I think. And uh, that's an excellent you know, a high point really for the movie. It's kind of, the, the music is great and it, it really sells it as this big, big deal. And then suddenly mm-hmm. we end up in space and uh, we get this uh, re- kind of sub, I mean, everything is sub 2001, but this, th- this is really dreadful stuff. I don't know what, what's going on with the effects department, but there's this unusual um, attempt to sell zero gravity by slowing down the, the footage to this yeah. kind of step frame uh, and, the, and they've got like the Jerry Goldsmith ripoff score working with the you know the the majesty of space. It's all very twinkly. Well, and the satellite that they're using, the Grazer One, it's almost sentient, isn't it? It reminded me a little bit of the Squiddies in the Matrix. It has uh, little kind of crab arms that kind of come out like unusually. Uh, I don't know who designed that thing, but the, the I had this theory about the slow motion. I, I love slow motion in movies. You can use it for uh, you know so many different uh, storytelling uh, methods, but in in this, it seems like it's an afterthought. And you'll see in in some of the later scenes, like uh, there's one where Seagal gets uh, sniped by one of the uh, mercenaries, the female mercenary on top of the train, and he and he goes down. And he goes down in this weird step frame slow motion, and it it seems to me it, it's an afterthought. It's uh, Jeff Murphy could be to blame here. Sorry, Jeff, he's no longer with us. But the uh, this idea that maybe the coverage or uh, the information that was supposed to come from the shot wasn't there. I, I do think at the beginning here in space they're slowing it down to to do something with the gravity, but it looks so so poor. And the use of a satellite must have been very topical at the time because I remember in GoldenEye the same MacGuffin. That's right. GoldenEye had it and Escape from L.A. Yeah. Uh, also had uh, terrorists taking control of uh, weapons in space. Well, let's give the film some credit. They basically predict Google Earth with the Grazer 1 satellite. We go down into a secret underground military bunker and there's a general there played by Clarence Bodiger. What's the, what's the actor's real name? Because he's great in everything. Kurtwood Smith. Red Foreman. Yeah, always be Red Foreman to me. Dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> but we're at a serious juncture within this military facility. They're about to check the operational capability of the Grazer 1 satellite. We have these two tech nerds who decide the best way to demonstrate the Google Earth capabilities of the satellite is to spy on a woman at a beach and look at her boobs and nobody blinks an eye. What the hell is going on? Just says, uh, Jim, Jim, clean it up. (laughs) Oh, yeah, someone says, oh, Jim, please clean it up. But Clarence Bardiger, the general, he doesn't reprimand them. Instead, he goes, oh, my God, it works. It it takes you, what, it's about two and a half to three minutes before this film shows its hand as being... Uh, just so unbelievably just puerile 
And the thing is, it doesn't really come up again. It's almost as if they realized that oh, we've shot an entire film and there's no boobs in it. Well, the, the, the first the first movie knocks it out of the park with that kind of stuff. It's the, when uh, yeah, they, they cast a Playboy model and she jumps out of a cake topless. I mean, you, you couldn't really get more on the nose than that. But and number two manages to, to kind of be more... Uh, more offensive in a way i mean i I wasn't particularly offended (laughs) by it but it was you know it's a different time but that is one matt of several examples throughout this film of these thudding thudding moments of obscene misogyny the first one is the boobs right at the beginning of the film then later on seagal uses a pair of boobs to kill a terrorist fair enough it's meant to be a bit of a punchline supposed to get a a giggle out of you i actually laughed more because he fluffed the line he basically is just like (laughs) mumbling his way through isn't he i think he he, he sort of says like then we have Catherine heigl's character who is supposed to be casey ryback's niece but Seagal speaks to her both as father and lover. At one point, I didn't know whether he was actually going to bang her. And then the final example is the way that they treat Brenda Backer's character. She, you will recognize from Hot Shots Part Deux, a beautiful woman. She plays one of the captains in this. The, there's a guy and girl, and they both are in a secret relationship. And they're on the choo-choo having some, uh, some s- sweet, intimate time. Travis captures them and tries to uh, and interrogates them and tortures them into giving away these encryption keys when he gets them he wants to dispose of them and he no longer has any use for them so he says you know chuck them off the train the guy we never see it's just like a yay and then with her we get the full gory details i think one of the characters even says you know like happy flights or something like that this film genuinely i think hates women and I'm sorry, but Steven Seagal is one of the producers, so he has to take some responsibility for this. And with his checkered past and with the way that we know that he has allegedly treated women in Hollywood, I was really surprised to see how far this film pushes that agenda. That, that, that scene uh, where they, uh, they have to get the launch codes, uh, I think it's launch codes, from, uh, from mm. the pair, the lovers on the train, um that coming back to die hard again that for me equates to the takagi scene where they're trying to get the codes to open the to get the bearer bonds out of the the safe in the nakatomi tower and uh they they threaten takagi and then they kill him and he doesn't give the codes but in in under siege 2 they give the codes and they throw them out anyway they just throw throw the pair of them out of the out of the train and she she goes into the water well i just want to go back to what devlin was saying before about how do you make a film with a star who is limited or doesn't have very much charisma, or in this case, can't even deliver dialogue. So Seagal's met up with Catherine Heigl, his niece after years, and he's decided to bond with her the only way he knows how, which is to buy her a teddy bear. And this entire sequence is so odd because I don't think he even registers a human emotion, but he's improvising and Larry David... Seagal is not and I don't mean to be churlish about it but I am fascinated to find out what it was that made me such a fan of his when I was a kid hey you know I was thinking I remembered that you collect teddy bears and I got you a teddy bear now this isn't quite as good of a teddy bear as some of yours I know that you may be too mature to hang out with teddy bears now it's just you know so the thought because 
Thanks. Guess I'm not trained for this. So after this bizarre sequence with uh, um, it's 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 the start of uh, of yeah just a, the the most inconsistent characterization of of this girl uh, and poor Catherine Heigl has to just whiplash around the place tonally but um, yeah she she stalks off and then uh, steps onto the train where she is immediately harassed by our sidekick slash comic relief Morris Chestnut. Uh, I know, Matt, you've got feelings about Morris Chestnut. Well, we're having to heighten everyone around Seagal just to give this thing some some momentum and some something interesting. So that they're going to throw in an African-American uh, comedic sidekick, which is uh, another trope of the genre. You've got um, you know, someone like Chris Rock in, in Lethal Weapon 4 who really elevates the film in, in parts. You've got Dave Chappelle in Con Air, who's pretty funny. You know, I love Dave Chappelle. Uh, Chris Tucker in Rush Hour, I like. But you know he's he's really charming and funny and compelling compared to uh, Bobby Zacks in this film. I mean he's <laughs> completely useless as as a, a sidekick. He, he's not funny. I mean Miss July '89 in the first one was was more uh, interesting and funny and useful to Seagal than than this guy. It's a complete failure. It's like they're, they're falling back on this this idea of, of uh, an African American comic. Who, who's going to to lighten the tone and and f- fill in for you know the audience that, that are, are looking for a comedic kind of streak to the film and and he he fails at every turn. I can't I can't think of anything even remotely funny that he says or does. No, there's the flailing that he does a a, a little later on after um, Catherine Heigl gives him a judo flip. And he walks into the bar and uh, uh, he's trying to say that he knows like some kung fu and he just does generic racist chinese sounds yeah it's pretty unfortunate isn't it i actually feel sorry for the actor because what was it a couple of years before he was in boys in the hood he's really good in that film and then he ends up in this that's right he plays ricky baker yeah. in boys in the hood he was, he was great in that and you know I, I didn't even connect the two really I, I i felt like they should have gone for a stand-up someone with a with, with a sense for a for comedy although i don't know maybe if they'd have brought somebody in who had a bit more of a kind of genuinely ironic tone to them. This film would have been more fun, but maybe that would is another thing that um, Seagal didn't want, because if you bring in somebody like that, it might start pointing out like the camp elements. By camp, I just mean like the absurdity of this whole situation. Shall we discuss the villains? Because in any action thriller, especially a diehard clone, the villains are as important, if not more important, than our heroes. And in Under Siege, Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Boosie are really good foils to the stoic Steven Seagal in that film. They're just having a whale of a time, really big performances, very, very entertaining, plenty of energy. In this, I found that Unfortunately, the terrorists just don't seem to be having much fun. For example, in the, in the first film, when Tommy Lee Jones and Gary Boosie take over the ship, they're playing Jimi Hendrix over the, over the soundtrack, and we're actually having a bit of fun with it. You know, it's pre-9-11, and terrorism can be fun, and I guess it's another trope of Die Hard, with the villains actually reveling in their villainy. In this, Travis Dane and Everett McGill just don't seem to be having much fun. 
And if they're not going to do that, then please at least make it challenging. The only thing that I could see that they did was they stole a couple of helicopters that, quite frankly, you could have just rented out. Well, they they break into that... Um what is it like the the helicopter facility you're not really sure what they're breaking into to start with <laughs> and, and for one thing uh they apparently the guy just knows the combination to the gate which i don't know if you guys saw it was uh 69 hash oh i didn't even notice that thank god that would have been another thing that hurt my head and then they just like storm in they shoot like five guys in the face and they're done I think we're really missing beauty here. He's he he elevates the first one. He's, he's funny. He dresses in drag. You know, what more do you want? I wanted a challenge for them. I wanted to see their professionalism. They talk. I think at one point Everett McGill describes his team of mercenaries as the best. Well, but we never see that when they take over the train. All they do is they spray bullets everywhere. Nothing's precise. It doesn't feel orchestrated. The only bit that actually ever feels like it was executed with any great strategy is the removing of dead bodies off the train. Outside of that, they take it over way, way too easy. And I guess that's probably the limitations of the vehicle itself. It can only go one of two ways. But it all just felt a bit flat. There's a, an amazing takeover of the Nakatomi in, in Die Hard. That's one of the, the... It's never been bettered, I don't think, as far as these terrorists or mercenaries taking control of a, of a space. And uh, th- this one, the Eric Bogosian, we should talk about. I think that's how we pronounce it. Uh, he, he's the, the mastermind here. He's the, the uh, unstable villain who has been wronged, which, again, goes back to the first Under Siege, where uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character has been betrayed by the uh, the military, I think. And this is kind of a revenge ploy. So you've got the, the diehard trope, again, of the, the mastermind, who's not particularly physically threatening. You couldn't believe that, that Hans Gruber could defeat McLean in a in hand-to-hand combat, for example. But you've got um, you've got Carl in Die Hard, who's a who's a stronger mercenary. And then in this one, you've got um, Everett McGill, who's kind of an action man, uh, soldier of fortune. Uh, people will know him from Twin Peaks and License to Kill. Uh, and he's he's the he's the muscle, really. He's he's the villain with the muscle. Well, despite what I said earlier about the terrorists not really having much fun. I actually quite enjoy the dynamic between Travis Dane and Everett McGill, the brains and the brawn. Eric Bogosian <laughs> is nailing down the idea of the smarmy, over-intellectual twat that you want to see taken down. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the character is sort of neutered by the fact that he has to remain in a carriage sat behind a computer for the majority of the running time. And the costume designer has decided to dress this guy in a substitute teacher's outfit, which is not conducive to establishing a threatening villain, as he ends up looking like Albert Hammond Jr. or whichever other geeky type character that you can think of. Ross from Friends or uh, (laughs) uh, Elliot Gould or... uh... See, I was going to say pound shop Elliot Gould, and right. it's not—it's nothing to do with the with the dynamic between him and uh, and Everett McGill. I actually think Everett McGill does some decent work until his character is completely castrated by the rampaging ego of Steven Seagal, and is just handily defeated in a few minutes. You, you never believe that that fight's going to go any other way. I mean, he even says yeah. to uh, Seagal's niece in the movie. Uh, Sarah, that that he's afraid of him before he fights him. He says, "I'm not afraid yeah. of anyone, but I'm afraid of him." And then when he fights him, he barely throws a punch. 
and nothing connects with Seagal. And that, that's the one where they end up fighting like a brother and sister on the ground. It was very, uh, very tame. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Matt, about that final fight. It's it's embarrassing. But w- one of the things you just reminded me of is when Everett McGill discovers Catherine Heigl is Casey Ryback's niece, she tries to defend herself by giving McGill a sort of Vulcan pinch on the cheek. And he decides to go, oh, yeah, I enjoyed that. Did your uncle teach you? The film forget that she's like 16 years old. It reminded me of Bennett in Commando. <laughs> well that's that's just that's just further creepy objectification of Catherine Heigl. Yeah, the, the, yeah. There's, a, there's a homoerotic tone, isn't there? But there's there's another guy who looks like Bennett from Commando, the one-eyed mercenary. Uh he's kind of oh, like yeah, Freddie yeah. Mercury uh with with some kind of a cataract. But but he he, he has a, an awful fight with Seagal as well. Uh uh, and I can't remember how that one ends. I think he's. Oh, it's uh, it's it's when he comes down when he's uh, he's he's trying to text message from his Palm Pilot, <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's right into uh, to to the admirals to to tell right. them what's going yeah. down. And of course, yeah. yes, this is the one big bit of product placement within the film, and then a callback to the first film uses it to contact Admiral Bates, and also that that he's using it to construct his memoirs. Right. <laughs> And that he manages to get another compliment to himself in that scene when the the, the yeah. girl says to him, "You don't look old enough to be, you're not old enough to be writing a, a memoir." And he just kind of smiles back. He he's not kind of self aware at all. He he loves that he's been complimented, and that's the end of the scene. It cuts to something else. Oh God! Again, you've got to feel sorry for Jeff Murphy mm-hmm. on this film set. How on earth are you supposed to deal with an ego that big? The whole film plays out like a 90-minute humble brag. When he gets shot later on, you, you know where he went, listen, I'll get shot, I see it's in the script, but it's not going to have any adverse effect on me. I'm Steven Seagal. He said, I'll get shot, but only if I deny that it ever happened. <laughs> We've got a few other villains we should mention. We've got Peter Green, who was Dorian from The Mask, and Zed from Pulp Fiction. And you might know him from the usual who I thought too. I thought was doing was doing way better work in this than the film yeah, deserved. He's, like he's actually got some some shifty energy and a little bit of nuance yeah. to him. He's just choked in literally a second. Seagal takes him down. But he he's a great character actor, I think. And and someone else who I really like as a character actor is uh, Jonathan Banks, who ends up as the, the train drive the train driver in this. And you'll know him as the cop from Gremlins. He's been in uh, Beverly Hills Cop and he was actually in uh, Jeff Murphy's Free Jack as well. Can we go back to Eric Bogosian? Because I feel like I want to really defend his performance in this film. Because I do know that uh, through WhatsApp that Devlin did not like Eric Bogosian in this at all. Had you guys ever seen him before? I, mean, I recognise him from Igby Goes Down and uh, from uh, the TV show Scrubs. He played a, a surgeon, I think, in Scrubs. But it, on, online it says that his most famous role is Talk Radio, which he, he did for Oliver Stone, and he wrote that too. But I've never mm. seen Talk Radio. I've had, I've had it on, on DVD since about 2002, and I've never mm. watched it. Oh, everyone's got that one film in their collection that they purchased and have still not seen. For me, it's uh, Adam McKay's The Big Short. Yep. Bought the DVD. Never seen it. But with Bogosian's performance playing Travis Dane, the, I actually saw the parallels again with Goldeneye in the Boris 
character in that film, you know, the tech guy who is going to basically destroy the world from his computer, which at this point in the mid-90s, I suppose we're still not quite au fait with computers, the internet, etc. The exemplar performance and character in the Die Hard clone is Alan Rittman's Hans Gruber, and Bogosian doesn't really get that opportunity to surpass that bar. But I am interested, Devlin. Well, the, what is were, it about him that you just can't get on with? If, before you go um, on, Chris, that there were there were some other uh, yeah. actors considered for the role of Travis Dane that obviously turned it down for good reason. Uh, Gary Oldman was one. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne was another. And wow. uh, Julian Sands, who uh, uh, I know, I know from Arachnophobia, okay, yeah. but I, not much else. Oh yeah, yeah, Poundland, Jeremy Irons. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, the, finally Jeff Goldblum. So you can see where a lot of the ideas. I mean, if you're aiming for Goldblum, okay. you can see what they were trying. But again, he yeah. he's, he's a kind of an inept villain too. You know, he he wouldn't be remotely threatening. I don't think. Yeah, so in concept, I don't have a, a problem with that. I quite like it in concept, the idea of like what could possibly be a, a legitimate challenge to, you know, this, what unfortunately has been developed as the world's greatest super soldier Navy SEAL, slightly, slightly overweight cook. And it makes sense that it would be, you know, it's like uh, it's like in Speed, you know, where uh, uh, Dennis Hopper's taunting um, uh, Keanu Reeves by saying that I'm smarter than you. It's like it's that is when you said that like your, the, your protagonist has to have a challenge that is either difficult or seemingly impossible to uh, overcome, then it makes sense that it would be a much smarter guy. It's just that his line delivery is so labored. And the reason I said pound shop Elliot Gould is that it reminds me Elliot Gould is a great actor who often puts in terrible performances, namely whenever he's on screen in Friends, although it's kind of charming when he does it, but like. Because he realizes he's on a live soundstage, he over delivers every line, but at the same, at exactly the same kind of pitch, and that's what Bogosian's got. It's like there's, it's just, uh, it just looks like he's trying really hard, and it makes me sad. Bonjour, guys. Who the hell is that? Jesus Christ! I'm not quite General Cooper, although I have sort of risen from the dead. No, it's just your old friend, Travis Dane. You remember, the guy you fired. And I bet just about now, you're probably asking yourselves, what the hell did we just shoot down? The answer is the NSA's best and only functional real-time down-looking satellite, the NSP-1. Not a bad piece of hardware. You'd probably be calling them any minute now and asking them for its use. Unfortunately, since even they don't know where the fuck it is, they're not going to be much help. Have you got him? Have you got him? What? I'm closing in. You roughly know where the last transmission came from, so you're probably closing in pretty fast on Grazier One's probable location. Yep, it's in there somewhere, hiding among those 50 ghost satellites I've created just for you. The, like you say, the entire middle section of just like running across the top of the train, running through the train, opening the vents on the side of the train. It's just the same shit happening to no real benefit to anyone. And the filmmaker's aware of that, Davlin, which is why we have this cliffhanger section. Oh, my God. Jeff Murphy has manufactured a way of getting off the train and rappelling down a cliff so we can have 
at least a different location and a different type of action sequence. Otherwise, we'll just end up running up and down the five carriages again, which is just where we've been at so far in the film. Do you remember? Do you remember even? I, I literally just watched it. Uh, just watched it yesterday. Do you even remember why they got off the train? Morris Chestnut stole the that's, desk. Right, that's it. After Segal blew up the carriage with coconut oil. Oh, because he's he's made so he's made the bomb out of the which that bar had a lot of coconut oil for some reason uh and then yeah and then he chucks it at them with a pager that says you're <laughs> fucked <laughs> in, not only that it says it in quotation marks which just have you guys ever seen um the uh an animated series called frisky dingo oh. it's from the same guy who made archer so the, the first episode has a um uh, a giant mutant villain who looks like satan um and he's threatening the entire world with his super weapon but um he after building the super weapon he doesn't have the budget to buy TV advertising to tell everyone that he's going to kill them. So he decides to do a postcard campaign instead where he writes the words, welcome to your doom. But he accidentally puts an apostrophe in the your and then he puts doom in quote marks. <laughs> and, and nobody's quite sure what they've got. This is what it's like, like you're fucked. But as I a thought quote, it was strange that he had the time to put that together. Well, the answer to every single question, Matt, is it's Casey Ryback. You only need to look at the way that the terrorists react when they discover Ryback's recipes and Ryback's memoirs. They are absolutely bricking it. The moment they find out it's Casey Ryback, our terrorists decide to question every yeah. life decision they've ever made up to this point. Yeah. Well, he says he, he trained them <laughs> at uh, Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg is where uh, and he's the best of the best. You know, and they all know him immediately. I do think the filmmakers missed a trick and they should have just cribbed Brett the Hitman Hearts tagline for the film and, and put down Casey Ryback, the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be, also known as Steven Seagal. So this little, uh, this little digression, this little subplot that we have where we've, uh, where we've just popped off the train to rip off Cliffhanger, which features just some of the worst backplates. Well, he, he manages to, to uh, get himself out of this situation by... Um, uh, one of the many mercenaries comes down to finish the job, but they've they've issued just a ridiculous uh, thing, which is like, don't shoot anyone because they might have the CD, the 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 leather and bondage porno CD. So it's like, don't shoot anyone. But there's no reason why they couldn't just shoot Bobby's ex and take his CD, because if he's dead, then you can just have it. Um, Perhaps they'd seen Problem Child and thought that it would be like John Ritter, where if they shot Bobby Zacks, they might end up hitting the CD, or in the Problems Child's case, the dried-up prune. <laughs> you have definitely lost me with that reference. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, which, during which time we, we find out that... Uh, well, Matt, you noticed that um, one of the mercenaries who does corner Bobby yeah. Zacks... Uh, indulges one of those terrible nineties tropes having a goatee <laughs> well yeah uh, he... exactly and 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 also just <laughs> just doing a, doing a racism like we've been waiting for the whole film yeah. for this to happen he's he's it's... like a, a racist uh, george carlin and and he he, he like we said <laughs> we, we were hoping it wouldn't happen we were hoping that he's not going to blurt something out and then he does but you know 1995 i'm i'm um, glad we've, gets, we've progressed he gets shot he for does it. get shot for it and it's at that point that you find out that the CD is just lying underneath the train, completely unaffected, unscratched, yeah. unbroken, 
And thus, we have just wasted 10 minutes of our lives. Seagal, at this point, is, is clinging from a, a rock face. And apparently, as, as with when he's running across the top of the train, his uh, Cuban-heeled cowboy boots <laughs> seem to have a tremendous amount of grip. <laughs> Go, just going from the racism, uh, the casual racism of the, the George Carlin incident, th- there's this idea that Seagal is quite popular in the African-American community, and he kind of panders to that, that audience. So I'm surprised that kind of stuff was was in there, but at least Bobby Zach's got, re- got revenge. There is a, a theme of African-American uh, sidekicks in some of Seagal's movies. Pam Greer is his partner in Nico, and uh, Keith David is in Marked for Death, but the, the plot of that film is very, it's, it's not exactly PC by t- today's standards, but you've mm. got um, a, a, lo- a lot of uh, Jamaican villains and things like that in that movie, but usually I think the, the the African-American community like Steven Seagal. And one of Steven Seagal's uh, TV shows that actually aired for a while was called uh, Steven Seagal, I think, colon, Lawman. And uh, (laughs) there was one episode where his team uh, attempted to stop uh, a cockfighting ring and they they stormed in using a tank and they they ran over (laughs) several uh, chickens and a dog uh, but they stopped the <laughs> cockfighting, which is the important thing. And he also has a, a, a lightning bolt energy drink. Have you ever seen any of his Japanese commercials for? Uh, for oh some my of god, I, I've seen um, I've seen his like weirdo quasi Russian ah. commercial. Obviously, now uh, Steven Seagal is is friendo Putin, as a lot of these kind of wheezing, aging shitbag actors did. Him and Gerard Depardieu, most notably. But there, there is a, a fantastic commercial of his on YouTube of uh, just two women in bikinis while he sits around at a poolside. The implication is that they have filled the entire swimming pool with um, lightning bolt and that they want to go swimming in lightning bolt. Hey there, we want to tell you about Steven Seagal's new energy drink. It's called lightning bolt. It's 100% natural and it tastes just great. In fact, it's so good, he likes swimming in it. How's it going, baby? Boss, I put another 2,000 cans to go to fill this pool. Man, I feel so sorry for you, but you know what? I really wanted to swim in Steven Seagal's lightning bolt with you. Yeah, but you know I love doing it, because I love you. I love you too, baby. Lightning bolt is a unique energy drink. It's the first of its kind. With 100% pure juice blends and is the only energy drink to contain Tibetan goji berries and Asian cordyceps. And it hits the spot every time. Now we can both swim in Steven Seagal's lightning bolt pool. This woman is, uh, is an Asian woman and then a blonde woman turns up uh, with, I think, like a big tray full of food wearing a, an apron over her bikini. And then in Russian says, may I also go and swim with my sister? Wow. And, but I mean, if we say that under siege to colon dark territory is like a um, a benchmark of where he is at that point in his career of how he sees himself and how he wants the world to see him, it's quite telling to see what the inside of his brain looks like now that he's all washed up. Well, I think it just goes to further my point that this film appears to be a vanity project whereby we get to see Steven Seagal's worldview 
you know, clearly he doesn't respect women. And one of the other reasons that we can sort of see that is the dialogue in this is dreadful. And one of the worst bits of dialogue is reserved for Brenda Backe's character when she's having sex and the terrorists take over the train. There seems to be explosives on the track. The guy she's sleeping with sort of says, what was that? And she just stops him and says, oh, it's called an orgasm. What the fuck? <laughs> we should mention the writers because it's, a lot of these problems come from the script. I'm guessing that this stuff wasn't improvised because it's it's too bad to even be to be improvised. I mean, you'd think of something better on the day. I think they were locked into saying these horrific lines. But uh, Matt Reeves is one of the uh, script, uh, screenwriters, uh, and Matt Reeves, of course, went on to uh, to make the Planet of the Apes reboot, uh, the sequel. Mm. The, some the, of the some of the the very yeah, good the ones. Dawn and War were his, and he made uh, Cloverfield, which I quite enjoyed, and uh, Let Me In as well was another one. He's actually a childhood friend of J.J. Uh, Abrams, and he's quite a big uh, a big guy in the the film industry now. He wrote this uh, uh, when he was still in college. Well, yeah, he must have been really young in '95. Uh, Brian Helgeland, he was uh, brought on by uh, Warner Brothers as a script doctor because this screenplay was originally called in dark territory and was completely unrelated to seagal or the under siege uh, series it wasn't written specifically and in, in a similar way to uh, the way simon there was a script called simon says that was turned into uh, die hard with a vengeance it was kind of um skewed and kind of turned into uh, an under siege movie uh, by by brian helgeland so he was actually involved at some point and he's an incredible writer so that's Kind of surprising that some of um, some of these lines made it in. Yeah, it very much feels like the Die Hard sequels in that respect, doesn't it? Whereby Seagal is going back to the well for Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory. They've got a spec script and they've just sort of transplanted Casey Ryback in it. And, and that makes sense because his previous film to this was On Deadly Ground, his environmental action thriller, which absolutely nobody saw and completely tanked at the box office so he was going back to what was already a tried and tested formula i have one piece of uh, on deadly ground trivia uh, when the the worst insert in film history happens in this movie uh, which is the plant in china being destroyed by grazer one the, the shot of the the factory exploding was actually uh, footage from Seagal's on deadly ground that was not used in the movie. There's some quite cool miniature work, but that shot is, is dreadful, that insert, and it kind of uh, dissolves, I think, or fades in an, in an unusual way to the control room with Admiral yeah. Bates and those guys, or maybe it's Kurtwood Smith at that point. But uh, it's, it's really bad. <laughs> oh, no, Matt. Who are you to say what an earthquake looks like midair? I personally think it's a really good representation of an earthquake. By the way, we even mentioned that the Grazer one is an yeah. earthquake maker. It's mental. They explain it so briefly that it really, it doesn't even, like, register. Also, uh, uh, nobody gives a shit about what I can only imagine is a huge part of China being absolutely fucking decimated. Like, the off-screen, the off-screen body count in this film must be outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But then uh, then Seagal has his duel with Everest McGill. Not much of a fight. Uh, but when he does take him down, they do give him a good one-liner. It's probably the best one in the film. Where it's just like, 
Nobody beats me in the kitchen. It's just a shame he can't deliver it. If only, like, Arnie was there to give him some tips. I kind of like that one. That wasn't bad. And Travis Dane now knows he's in real trouble. He's got Catherine Heigl hostage. And can you just help me understand something? Because I've seen the film twice now in a week. And I couldn't work out where this other train comes from, where we're going to have this head-on collision. Do they just switch the tracks? So in in Dark Territory, Under Siege 2, colon Dark Territory, there is, uh, yeah, there's two there's two lines and they, they switch tracks and it means that they're passing on the, um, on the, you know, into oncoming train traffic. And of course, Dark Territory means that nobody can radio anybody, which again, they don't really labor that point. Uh, it's a conceit. I can buy it. It's fine. So this is uh, Bogosian's big plan is that he's, his big, his grand finale is that they're all going to be helicoptered out once it all becomes inevitable. That's right. Bogosian's plan is to blow up the nuclear reactor under the Pentagon and he's charging one billion for the privilege of not doing that. And it feels like a missed opportunity again because it reminded me of Die Hard 4.0. We have the old antiquated Bruce Willis coming from a, an analog age fighting digital. When Bogosian sees Casey Ryback, he says to him, the clock's ticking, there's nothing you can do to stop me, Ryback. <laughs> and then all that Seagal does is he pulls a gun, looks at him, and says, what if I just shoot you in your computer? Yeah. And he shoots the computer, and it works. Bogosian looks surprised, and then falls out the window. It's absolutely ridiculous. I dare anyone not to burst out laughing. But he falls ass backwards out of the window of... Of a moving train. <laughs> <laughs> if they'd left it there, that would have been an awful, just a, a really underwhelming death if yeah. he'd just fallen backwards out of that window. I, I think it must have been an afterthought to put him on the rope ladder. And uh, Oh, Matt, before we get into the second coming of Bogosian, can I just make mention, before I forget, the dummy work in this film. There is one bit <laughs> when when they're on the rope ladder, Morris Chestnut's fighting the uh, the female mercenary and they're fighting on top of this helicopter in the cabin and they, they're having a wrestle and tussle. Morris Chestnut manages to chuck her out using the uh, Aikido wrist move that he learnt from Catherine Heigl. And, oh, my God, when the dummy falls out and lands on that train carriage... Honestly, I had to stop the film and step out. Honestly, it had me in absolute hysterics. It's just the way the legs and the arms flail around. And it's not the first bit of dummy work. This is the second one. It is uh, earlier on when they're doing the cliffhanger sequence. Just the way that the computer-generated dummy falls down the mountain. I recommend just on the dummy work alone. There is uh, <laughs> an, there's an excellent uh, puppet death in the first one. Tommy Lee Jones, spoiler, gets his head. Oh, he gets yeah. knifed in the head. And they go to this close-up <laughs> insert of a, a of a puppet head of Tommy Lee Jones. Like I just think somebody owned that. It's probably in someone's office or something. <laughs> this idea that Segal can outrun a train carriage colliding uh, yep. is is insane yeah, as well. He can, he, not just that. It's because the I mean the way that physics works is that that's two trains traveling fast in opposite directions. And you have to assume that the ta- I mean, by the looks of it, the tanker is faster than the passenger train. Mm. And so that train is plowing through, but the train that he is on is also traveling f- closer towards the train that is already traveling into the other train. So he's outrunning essentially two trains at the same time. Yeah. Like the, the, the cumulative speed of two colliding trains <laughs> he can run faster than in his Cuban right. heels. 
It's not a run. It's a jog, Devlin. And it's the kind of jog you do <laughs> when you've pooed your pants and you're desperately <laughs> trying to keep it within your underwear for the sake of it not sliding down your leg and embarrassing yourself any further. Who was it who was it who pointed out that he's almost definitely wearing a girdle? Oh, Seagal was a, a stunt coordinator as well on some of the earlier films. Hard to kill Nico and Mark for Death. He was he served as a stunt coordinator and he was martial arts instructor on the non canon Bond picture, uh, Never Say Never Again with Sean Connery, whose wrist Seagal broke during filming he broke connery's wrist and he actually choreographed hard to kill and uh a view to a kill with roger moore and those are the two bond films where the bonds wear girdles so you know the the student has become the master because i mean you can tell he's also when he's um standing in a scene sometimes he'll he'll turn himself at a, a strange angle to the camera and he always um, puts a hand kind of defensively across his midriff. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can explain that, Devlin. As an early 30s, slightly spongy bloke, I also put the arm on the midriff, and I think it is just a subconscious thing to suggest, please do not look at my little pot belly because I put a bit of toast on. But back to the film. Cigars out ran the train. He's just jumped on the ladder that's being held down by the helicopter. And this almost feels like it comes out of a horror film. Bogosian grabs the ladder and he's back, back after a second death. And doesn't he shout something like, you're coming with me, Ryback? No, he, he said, doesn't he say something like, Ryback, we make a great team? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I don't... <laughs> I just want to do one final parallel to Die Hard here before we wrap up. There's the Hans Gruber death. He's actually shot when he's holding Holly hostage. Uh, McLean shoots him, very similar to this, where he gets shot through the laptop. Uh, and then he tumbles out of a window, which Hans Gruber does. And then he plummets to his death, which Hans Gruber also does at the end of the film. So I, I do think there are some Die Hard nods going on. Oh, that might have been the intention. <laughs> but if you didn't think that the special effects at the end of Alien 3 were particularly great, then, my God, when Bogosian falls into the ball of fire and you can actually see the outline of his, his body, oh, <laughs> it's ropey, isn't it? It's, we were on, uh, it's like lawnmower man levels. Of Oof, I don't know about that, Devlin. I would suggest that this is probably the worst visual effect that we've seen in all the films that we've reviewed so far in the show. After, this is because after after his fingers get chopped off, right? Which is fucking weird. That was cut from the uh, the BBFC cut that from the eighteen certificate in in England. So whichever version I saw, I guess I saw that that eighteen certificate when I rented the the VHS. So seeing it for this podcast, uh, it was great because I got to see uh, Bogosian's severed fingers. So there you go. Yeah, I think the BBSC were probably taking into account the British sensibility. We would probably deem slamming a door shut, chopping someone's fingers off as, as being terribly unsporting. Oh, yeah. It's not, not cricket. And that's pretty much the end of the film, right? Ryback has killed the terrorist. He saved the hostages. I mean, we've barely spoken about them because it's so anticlimactic the way that they're saved. Oh, they, well, they get, they've already been uncoupled. Yeah, Morris Chestnut Mor- saves them, doesn't he? Yeah, Morris Chestnut leaves them back. Yeah, and then when they are saved, they just stand up and start clapping. You see, we, yeah. 
you're still on a train in the middle of fucking nowhere. (laughs) The film at this point is desperate to finish. So Ryback calls into Admiral Bates from the helicopter. All hostages saved. All terrorists killed. Everyone's happy. Everyone's celebrating. We then cut to Ryback and his niece, who now have reconciled. They're in front of the grave of her father, Ryback's brother. And he's in his navy whites, not looking as trim as when he was in the slimming black costume that he's been sporting all film. And we have a song that plays over the top, which is in the form of Randy Newman. And it is written and performed by Segal, although he doesn't sing because there's no way he can muster this vocal range. We're going to reserve that track for the outro of the episode. So, firstly, Matt... Any final thoughts on Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory? And should our listeners seek it out? I would recommend seeing it once. I've seen it six times now, <laughs> and uh, I, I wish I could go back. But the, I do like the first one more. I think uh, revisiting the, the first one and maybe watching the second one, you know, alongside it or the day after or whatever, it, whatever you want to do, that, that's... You know, it's a good laugh. You know, you can have it with a pizza and a beer. It's one of those films, but it's it's very uh, heavy on the uh, patriotic America uh, propaganda, and it's uh, even though Dark Territory is the lesser offender of the two, um, I, I still feel like it's a Go America kind of a, a film, which kind of annoys me. But uh, Dark Territory, uh, it keeps some of the action, but it, it's, it hasn't aged as well as uh, the first one, which has more practical effects. I think there's only a couple of op- opticals in there where um, some of the planes are destroyed, I think, from the Missouri. But the, you know, the majority of it has aged really well. But uh, um, Under Siege 2 Dark Territory, I, I think, is fit for one viewing and perhaps an extra drunken viewing. But um, beyond that, you're... I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. It's not Seagal's best. I would, I would seek out Marked for Death or uh, maybe Hard to Kill. Uh, Gali mentioned some of the great stuff in Hard to Kill that, that will really make you laugh. I'd recommend the first one more than the second, but uh, for one viewing, maybe. What about you, Devlin? It's, it's a difficult one because I, I would, I'd, I'd agree that I, I really feel like you should see it, if only because like this level of sort of dangerous, outrageous narcissism just can't exist in hollywood anymore you don't really get people who get this famous and get to use that fame this recklessly like it is fascinating to watch on that level it's also fascinating like we said as as a film whereby you have to work so hard to convince an audience that what is happening is badass i would say watch it just to peer into the mind of what happens when somebody is given a level of success which far outstrips their talents. I wouldn't want to see these these days again because, um, as we've seen, and we don't want to get too dour and serious about it, but you know, the flip side of this is that Steven Seagal used his success to be the worst version of himself he could possibly be. But just as a as a filmmaking exercise, it's uh, it is it's shit and it's absolutely fascinating. How about you guys? Yeah, totally agree with you, Devlin. I certainly wouldn't want a return to the dark days of the past where stars like Seagal were able to abuse their power and exploit others in an effort to inflate their own egos. However, I found this film 
utterly, utterly fascinating to watch. I was, I was transfixed the whole time. I, I can recognise that this is not good. It is not good at all. We've been, throughout the whole episode, comparing it and doing parallels to Die Hard and Die Hard clones. I don't think this is a very good Die Hard clone. I don't think this is a very good action film. But what I do think it is, endlessly rewatchable. I don't put this in the category of so bad it's good. I put it into a category of a case study that must be watched and must be dissected in order to understand why these films no longer are made and how kind of weirdly entertaining they are just because everything on the screen doesn't really work. But somehow, I, I'm I'm just transfixed. I just can't look away. So, yeah, I'm going to recommend it, but I'm going to recommend it, like Matt said, pizza and a beer. And I'm going to do a bit of a shout-out to one of our Twitter friends, uh, Dom O'Brien, who is a big sequels fan. He writes most of his blogs on sequels, and I'm sure he's probably got uh, more positive things to say about the film than maybe we have. But I can certainly understand why people gravitate towards these kind of properties because it's just, they are kind of fun. And I think in Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory, I may have found my Halloween 3 season of The Witch Devlin where I think I'll probably end up watching this film once a year just to remind myself of the madness. So, listeners, for those of you who are seeking out Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory, it's currently available on Amazon Prime, as is the uh, first film, Under Siege. And you can also pick up the Blu-ray double bill, like I did, for £5, with special features like the trailer. And that is it. (laughs) Does that have have an interactive scene menu? No, don't even think it's got an interactive menu. And that's us reached the end of the episode, guys. So if you enjoyed it, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that, as that will help others come to the show. If you want to contact us, because we'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode and what you think of the film, Under Siege 2, colon, Dark Territory, you can find us on Twitter at RewindMovieCast. And we're also on Instagram. And you can also go to the website, RewindMovieCast.com. All that's left is to say our goodbyes. So it's Gally in Glasgow signing out. And Devon in London signing out. I got to go make the cake. And Matt in South Korea. Uh, Au revoir, guys. And as we promised, here is After the Train is Gone, written and performed by Steven Seagal. Oh, brother. (laughs) Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Oh, brother. Can you hear that sound? Out on the wind alone It's a lonesome whistle As the steel wheels pound I know you're dreaming